morning, Journey. Ed Stetzer, in his book, Christians in an Age of Outrage, tells the following illustration. Every year, hundreds of thousands of runners participate in about a thousand marathon races all across the country. Uh, They buy the right gear, they sign up for the race, they line up with the other participants, but when the starting gun sounds, many of them fall apart in the very first stages of the race. Uh, They neglected to train. They thought you could just go run a marathon, and I'm in pretty good shape, and you could do that. I don't know what kind of people those are. I just know I'm not one of them. And uh, they thought they could show up and just run. No training, nothing, no conditioning, no experience, no preparation. But what matters in a marathon race really isn't what you do during that race. It's the weeks or months of training. It's the hundreds of miles that provide you the strength and the knowledge to run that race effectively. And Stetzer goes on to say that nominal uh, Christians, marginal Christians, are like marathon runners who signed up for the race, got their official number, bought the fancy running gear, but they never went out and did any actual training. Uh, They can't run the race effectively because they've not prepared effectively. They haven't developed habits in their life of faith, like prayer and Bible study and worship and community. They're not a part of something that can sustain them and inform them and help them shape their worldview and live their life. They essentially have the t-shirt, but not the ability to run. Well, last week, Paul used this illustration in Philippians at the beginning of chapter 3 of an accountant. And Paul talked about discovering new values when he started following Jesus. The things that he used to think were gain and profitable, he now considered loss compared to knowing Jesus, like like an accountant who balances the books. Well, this week, as we finish chapter 3, in the first half of our text, Paul's going to use the illustration of an athlete. He's going to talk about pressing towards the finish line as he strives for Christ. And in the last half of our text this week, Paul's going to use the illustration of being an alien or someone from another land. And he's going to talk about how his real citizenship is not here on earth, but in heaven, and how he looks forward to the day that that will come. And so we're going to dive in here in Philippians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Philippians chapter 3, or if you want to scroll there on your phone app this morning, we're going to simply, kind of like last week, walk through the last half of chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to walk verse by verse through the end of chapter 3. And in this, we're going to see three things that Paul wants to tell us, and we're going to see two questions that we should ask before we leave. And so we're going to start here at the beginning, and the first thing Paul is going to tell us is to recognize there's always room to grow. That as a Christian, we have to recognize there's always room to grow. In verse 12, Paul says, not that I've already obtained this, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on, I I move forward to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Paul tells us that a new relationship with Jesus means a new pursuit of Jesus in life. That when we come to Christ and we give our life to Christ, when we bury our old life and are raised anew, we are given new life from Jesus. We cannot obtain that ourselves. Jesus gives us life eternal and life more abundant right now. But Paul says, once I give my life to Jesus, that means he has given me new life, but it also means that now 
I'm pursuing something new in this life. Uh, that verb, press on, it really means to run or to flee in order to catch a person or thing. Uh, it was most commonly used in Paul's day in reference to running a race. It was really talking about a sprinter, someone who would run a race. And the picture of pressing on is when that sprinter gets near the finish line and they begin to widen their stride as they see the tape across the finish line. They put out their chest as they accelerate through the finish line. That word that Paul's using, it's a, it's a Greek word, deako, and what it really means is that idea of straining or pressing ahead right at the finish line. It's that last kick you have at the end of the race that comes from out of nowhere. And Paul says that the key as we start this journey this morning, as we talk about and continue to talk about in this letter of Philippians, what does it mean to live in Christ and to live for Christ? He says one of the keys is not to walk around thinking that we have, it all, we have all the answers. Paul says that as a Christian, there is always room to grow. There is always something to learn. And it's our role and our job in this life to continually press forward, to stretch towards the finish line of Jesus, to widen our stride, to be open to God's leading and God's direction. This idea this morning that there's always room to grow, that what needs to change is not the standard that God sets for us as followers of Jesus, that what needs to change is us. Uh, there's an illustration I've heard before of a guy named John Scalinos. Most of you probably had never heard of John Scalinos. I've never heard of John Scalinos. Uh, but John Scalinos was a baseball coach at Cal State Polytechnic for 29 years. Before that, he'd been a baseball coach at Pepperdine for 14 if you're not a baseball coach this morning, you've probably never heard of him, but he's kind of a living legend in the baseball collegiate community. And so there's a story of a gathering of 4,000 coaches, from, literally from Little League all the way through the majors. And Scalinos is at this gathering, and he wanted to illustrate a truth about coaching that applies to the discipline of life also. And so Scalinos gets up on stage, and he has a home plate tied around his neck, like a necklace. Not like a picture of a home plate, like a legit home plate that he took off the baseball field, put on a string, and hung it around his neck. Kind of weird. Scalino spoke for 25 minutes, and he never talked about home plate. Like he just sat up on stage with his huge home plate talking about other stuff. And he started to wonder, like, if he thought he didn't know it was there, if he was like a new Flavor Flay, for those of you that grew up in the 90s. All right? The 78-year-old coach shared with this audience, a secret that he learned that governed his entire life. He said, how many of you here are Little League coaches? And, and some people raised their hands, and he said, well, let me ask you a question. On the Little League baseball field, how wide is home plate? And they all said, well, 17 inches. He said, 17 inches, that's right, good, good, good. He said, all right, let me ask any, any juniors, like just before, like junior high baseball coaches, they raised their hand, he says, how wide is home plate? He said, 17 inches. He says, good, good, good. And he goes, uh, high school coaches, and this went on and on. High school coaches, college coaches, minor league coaches, all the way up to major league coaches. And every time he said, how wide is home plate? And every set of coaches said 17 inches, 17 inches. So Scalino then looks at the audience. He says, so at any level, whether you're a little kid or you're a major league star, if one of your pitchers cannot throw a strike over those 17 inches, and he held up the plate. He says, let me ask you a question. Whether you're a little league coach or a major league coach or in between, have you ever widened the plate to make it easier for him to throw a strike? And the coaches were like, well, no. Like, does this guy know what he's doing? 
He says, no, we, we've never done that. Esquinos went on to continue, and he says, so what you're telling me is that you don't widen the plate when they can't hit the strike zone. He says, what you're telling me is that your pitcher actually has to learn how to throw over the plate in order to be effective? Yeah. And then he went on and he made this point. He said, so why in the Christian life, why as followers of Jesus do we think that we can widen the plate instead of asking God to help us learn how to pitch? He says, why do we think as a follower of Jesus, he wasn't speaking to the world that doesn't know Jesus, but why as a follower of Jesus do we think what we need to do is relax God's standards of holiness to, to make God's standard of right and wrong longer, to make what it means to follow Jesus easier? Why do we think we can relax what God has set as the standard? He says, why do we think we can widen the plate instead of saying, God, can you come into my life and teach me how to pitch? And, and that's what Paul has been talking about in this whole letter. And, and just a reminder again this morning, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus in the church. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if he's not the Lord and Savior of your life, first of all, we're super glad you're here. But we also don't expect you to live like someone you've never met or give your life to. But what Paul's saying is if you've given your life to Jesus, it's Jesus who can come in and transform you. And so he says, remember that you're never done growing. Whether you're nine, a little league nine-year-old, or a 99-year-old major league Christian. <laughs> he says, you're never done growing. Well, Paul goes on, he says, the only way we can do that is to forget what's behind. In verse 13, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul says you can't look behind when you're running the race for Jesus. And that's true in real life, right? Like, we, we're all taught that if you ever did track, whether you were junior high, high school, anything, like one of the first things the track coach tells you is quit looking behind when you're running, right? I never had that problem because if everybody's ahead of you, you don't look behind, right? <laughs> like, what's back there? The starting line and my mom, right? <laughs> but that's what you do. You don't look behind, right? Because when you look behind in a race, in a, in a track race, what happens is often you stumble and fall, right? You look behind, you trip over your own feet, and you fall. You look behind, you get caught by the opposition who's pursuing you. And when you look behind, you never see how close the finish line is, and so you lose hope. Well, that's true in the race with Jesus as well. That if I spend my whole life living for Jesus, looking back at my past, well, then what happens is that's, that's when I stumble and fall. When I look back at what's been, instead of forward to what Jesus is doing, that's when the opposition catches me. That's when I forget how close the finish line is, and I start to lose hope. And Paul says if we're going to run this race with Jesus, we've got to forget the past. And now here's the deal. He's not just talking about your failures. Paul's saying, if I'm running towards Jesus, I'm forgetting what I've done poorly, and I'm forgetting what I've done well. That I can't dwell on how I've failed, but I also can't sit on my laurels and go, well, I've run pretty well. Remember 20 years ago when things were so good? You can't do that in the race. We look forward to what's ahead. 
And we have to remember that, that this Bible terminology, this biblical terminology of, of forgetting, it doesn't necessarily mean failing to remember. What, what Paul's really talking about is no longer being influenced or affected by it. Uh, Bible commentator Tony Morita says it this way. He says, forgetting those things which are behind does not suggest an impossible feat of mental or psychological gymnastics by where we try to erase our sins and mistakes of the past and they just we never remember them. He said what it simply means is that we're breaking the power of our past living and failures. And Paul says if we want to run to Jesus, then we got to forget where, where we run from. We got to forget what's behind and we have to press on and move forward. That's what Paul says in verse 14. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm moving forward towards what Jesus is bringing. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said it this way. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners, but only, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we get an imperishable prize. He said, so I am not running this life aimlessly. I'm not boxing it as one beating the air. I'm disciplining my body. I'm keeping it under control, lest after preaching to others, I might be disqualified. Paul says, every day, I'm striving not to earn my way to heaven. I'm striving because Jesus is bringing me to heaven. So I want to live for the one who died for me. And that means i got to forget behind and I've got to press forward to what's ahead. It's like the employee at a large corporation. He made a mistake that cost the company literally millions of dollars, just over a million dollars. And he went into the boss's office assuming that he was going to be fired. The boss set him down and he said, do you know the secret to making a million dollars? The employee said, well, obviously not. And the boss said, it's making good decisions. And the employee thought, here it comes. And he says, you know what I've learned over these years is the secret to making good decisions? Said, no. He said, it's learning from the bad ones that you make. And he looked at this employee and he said, I'm not going to fire you. He said, I just invested over a million dollars in you. So he said, you better learn from this mistake and maybe my investment will pay off in the end. Well, church, as we follow Jesus in this life, I think it's good for us to step back and remember the investment that Jesus has already made in us. Jesus gave a lot more than a million dollars for you and for me. Jesus gave everything he had. He gave up his life so that we could live in Jesus and for Jesus. Can I just tell you, he's not going to give up on you. He's invested too much. He gave his life so you and I could live. He's not going to quit on us. He's not going to look at our mistakes and our failures and go, you know what, that's the one that does it. That's the one that pushes the balance over the end. He's going to look at you and me when we fail, and he's going to tell us to keep moving because he gave everything so we could live. He's never going to quit. And so as you and I run this race with Jesus, never, ever forget what is invested in you as a follower of Jesus. His life was poured out for you and for me. He invested everything so that we could live in him 
And that should lead us to live for him. Well, Paul goes on, there's, there's a couple kind of transition verses here. In verses 15 and 16, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, if you're a mature follower of Jesus, these are the things that you should think. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. He says, only let us hold true to what we've attained. So Paul takes kind of a break, I think, here, and he just says, all these things we've talked about, that's what a mature Christian thinks, and that's what a mature Christian does. And then Paul goes on in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, and what he's going to talk about, I think, is, provokes a couple questions that I want to ask. So, so two questions before we wrap this up. And the first thing that I think Paul is begging us to ask is simply this. Do you and I, as followers of Jesus, do we have an example to follow? And are we being that example for someone else? Because who you follow in this life matters. In Philippians 3, verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul says that there should be people in our lives on earth who follow Jesus in such a way that we could follow them and it would make us look more like Jesus. So that begs the question, do you have that person in your life? But it also begs the question this morning, if you and I are followers of Jesus, are we being that person to someone else? He reminds us once again that this sanctification process, this idea of becoming more like Jesus and how we live, that it's a community effort. You and I can't do this alone. We do it together. And can I just tell you this morning, if you're here and you think nobody follows you, you're wrong. I don't care if you're super tight with Jesus or if you've never heard of Jesus till you showed up this morning. There is somebody in your life, whether you know it or not, who follows you. Who looks at you and says, yeah, that's who I want to be. Some of you are in positions in life where there are many people who follow you. Because of your title, because of where you work, because of what you do. And it begs the question, do we live in such a way that it leads people closer to Jesus and not further away? There's an old story that's told of Mahatma Gandhi. I honestly don't know if it's true, but I like the story. Supposedly, a woman brought her son to Gandhi because she wanted Gandhi to tell him to quit eating sugar. And she said, I've been telling him, but he won't listen, but he'll listen to you because you're Gandhi. Well, makes sense to me. And so they brought him to Gandhi, and Gandhi said, bring him back in a week, and I'll tell him. She's like, okay. So she goes home, comes back a week later, and Brings him in, and Gandhi grabs the boy and puts him on his lap and says, quit eating sugar. And they leave. And the mother kind of lingered, and she goes to Mahatma Gandhi, and she says, this is great, but can I ask, like, why did we have to wait a week for that? Like, couldn't you have just said it last week when we journeyed here? And supposedly Gandhi looked at her, and this is what he said. He said, I couldn't tell him last week because last week I was still eating sugar. Church, I think, I think we've done a really good job, church worldwide, of telling people what not to do. I think we've done a really good job of telling the world to quit eating sugar. But I think we're doing a really poor job of not eating sugar ourselves. I think we've gotten really good on social media and in our conversations and in all those things of telling the world what not to do. 
Like we're really good at telling people, you got to love people like Jesus. But then the world looks at our Facebook posts or looks at the way we talk at a ball game or the way we, we get mad when something doesn't go our way and they go, well, if that's how Jesus loves, then I'm already doing that. We, we do a really good job of saying love like Jesus, but we don't love like Jesus. We do a really good job of telling the world to live like Jesus, to, that you need to have right and wrong and moral standards. But if the world came in our room in the middle of the night when nobody's around and saw what we watch and saw what we say and saw how we treat each other, they'd go, well, you're not living that way either. We do a really good job of saying stop eating sugar. Well, we got a candy bar out the side of our mouth. You know, Jesus talked about that. <laughs> that idea that we, we can see, I can see the sawdust in your eye from clear up here. I wasn't pointing anybody in specific, just for the record. <laughs> and you guys are, but, but there's this huge plank in the side of my head that I'm just like, oh yeah, it's fine. And Paul asks this question. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you have examples that you follow, but are you an example that others could follow too? I think, personally, that's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in some fashion in Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says, since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, I think he was talking about both witnesses now and the people who went before us. And he says, then, then lay aside all the weight and all the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The only way you and I can be an example that others can follow is if we are so close to Jesus that it just spills out in us. And can I let you in on a secret this morning? I'm not there yet. I've been walking with Jesus for 23 years. I've been getting paid to do it for 20, <laughs> all right? I'm not there yet. There are way too many moments in my life where I don't look enough like Jesus. I'm going to bet that's true for all of us this morning. And so the last question we have is, where will we set our minds? What will be the focus of our life. Paul goes on and he finishes the chapter. He says, Many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in the shame and the minds that are set on earthly things. Don't miss that. Paul says, But our followers of Jesus, our citizenship, well, that's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's he who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says that if we want to walk with Jesus, our minds have to be set on things that aren't of this world. He said those who oppose Jesus, their things, their minds are set on earthly things. But Paul says this world is not our home. Our citizenship is is in heaven. And when Paul mentions citizenship to the Philippian church, they would have instantly thought of their Roman citizenship. That was a big deal in Paul's day. And wherever a Philippian went, even though they were a Philippian, they were also a Roman citizen. And so they would have had all the rights and all the privileges of a citizen of Rome, and they would have spread Roman culture everywhere they went. 
These people in Philippi would have drawn this parallel to what Paul was saying, that Christians are to do the same. That as Christians, we enjoy all the rights, we enjoy all the privileges of a heavenly citizenship that is to come. No matter where life takes us, we are citizens of heaven, and there will be a day that Jesus returns and fulfills all those things. And so while we're here, no matter where we travel outside of heaven, we're supposed to spread heavenly culture everywhere we go. Paul says mature Christians realize that this world is not our home. Scripture tells us that we'll have groanings this side of heaven. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Paul says creation waits with an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul goes on to talk about creation itself will be set free from bondage. He says, for we know, at the very end of this verse, he says, for we know that all of creation has been groaning together like childbirth until now. It's this idea of a painful groaning that longs for what is to come. And not only creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul tells us this morning is that as Christians, we should be giving the world a glimpse of what's to come, a glimpse of heaven on earth. And let me word it this way. People should see the way we live and the way we speak and the way we treat each other, and they should look at us and go, you must not be from around here. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis writes, it's one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia, and the band can come and get ready to lead us in our closing or in our commitment song this morning. But in this, this story that C.S. Lewis writes of the girl Lucy, she's mourning the loss of Narnia. The, the place that they lived is all gone. The great world that was created by Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And this beloved world, Lucy assumes, has been destroyed forever. And there's a unicorn in the story named Jewel. And the unicorn is mourning too and actually calls Narnia the only world I've ever known. And although Lucy and her family are on the way to Aslan's country, which is heaven in the book, she still looks back at Narnia where she's lived and feels this sense of profound loss. But as she gets deeper into Aslan's country, she notices something she didn't expect. And this is what she says in the book. She says, these hills the, the, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind them over there, she says, aren't those very much like the southern border, border of Narnia? And her brother Edmund says, like? Why, why, they're exactly the same almost. And look, there's Mount Pyre and, and its forked head, and there's the pass to Arkenland and everything. And Lucy goes on and says, and yet they're almost not alike at all. They're different. They're they have more colors on them. They look further away than I remembered. And they're more, they're more, oh, I don't know, more like the real thing, said Lord Diggory. But how can that be, said Peter? For Aslan told us that us older ones, that we would never return to Narnia again. And yet here we are. And we saw it all destroyed. And we saw the sun put out forever, and it's so different. And then Lord Diggory spoke up, and he said, listen, Peter. He said, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. He says, but let me tell you, that's not the real Narnia. 
That's not the Narnia that's always been here and always will be just as our world. He said, just like England, where we're from, and all of it there is just a shadow or of a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. For all of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different. It's as different as a real thing is from a shadow and as waking, as waking life is from a dream. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. And it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was thinking. He stamped his foot on the ground. He neighed and then he cried. He said, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. Though I never knew it until just now. He said the reason why we love the old Narnia is because it sometimes looked like this. Church, we are not home yet. We are not home yet. And this world and all the things in it will pass away, but the new heaven and the new earth will not look completely different because all the really good and rich things of God in this world will come there through the door. And that door is Jesus Christ, the one who died so you and I could live. This morning we invite you to know him to surrender and to give your life to him. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, our invitation is simple, to give the world a glimpse of what's to come, to show them the best things are yet to come, and to remember this world is not our home, but we are to be a small piece of that home here on earth. Let's do that as we